0: or a uh, headphone jack maybe in the bottom sounds like you found it Mm -hmm. (laughs) sorry
1: no it's fine we just uh, we have the headphones on and they they bring all the truth of the sound into our ears Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined by Christina Encheva, developer in our New York studio. Christina, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here.
1: So, what have you been up to? What have you been working on?
0: So, recently I did a series of short stints uh, with a bunch of different clients on mostly Rails apps, mostly small clients in very specific domains which I really enjoyed. I love working on a boring Rails apps, one of my favorite things to do. So recently I rejoined a project that I had worked on before, and it's a boring Rails app in, I mean that absolutely as a compliment. <laughs> and I've been working with Contentful, which is a headless API CMS and enabling our end users to control their own content without relying on a developer. So that's been really fun. I love the headless API model. I love working with Contentful. And then there is at least one other headless API CMS product that I've worked with that I really enjoy.
1: What's the other one that you've worked with? Prismic. Mm, Cool. I want to circle back to both of those and broadly to the the topic of of headless CMSs, because it's a thing I've heard about, but not actually dug into that much. But I there was a thing that you said there that I sort of want to focus on for a minute, which was the it's a boring Rails app, and I love those. And I think that is a theme that is common throughout ThoughtBot developers that maybe doesn't map to the community at large as much. I think there's a lot of, I want to go for the bright and shiny. I want to do the new thing. But I think part of what we really strive to focus on at ThoughtBot is delivering value is actually producing something meaningful focusing on the end user and as a result we often find ourselves saying something like yeah no it's it's a boring rails app it's great i can ship features i can move things and it's actually i think it's been a theme across a bunch of the recent episodes is conversations about newer fancier things but with this continual foundation of right but if we use the thing that we know we can also build it pretty quickly and actually get there and it's a so I, i just thought that was interesting the way you phrased it and the way you sort of clarified it's a boring rails app but i mean that in the best way
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a compliment. Yeah, it's definitely a theme here. I think it's something different than you might hear at consultancies or other product companies. I'm constantly having to kind of make that case, I think both with clients and sometimes when we're recruiting. I have a friend who's interested at working at Thoughtbot and he was asking me, oh, like, you know, how do you feel about Rails compared to this new JavaScript framework? And I kind of always have to go back to another kind of theme here is development should be boring Mm -hmm. and should be uneventful. And I think that Rails really enables you to just focus on delivering value quickly and not spending time figuring out all these new technical things that are exciting, you know? And so I have like a whole separate life where I mess around with JS frameworks, doing all sorts of silly things. So I'm not necessarily hating on other tools. It just depends on what your goal is. And if your goal is to get a new product to market quickly and not spend time fussing, there's a certain way that I think Thoughtbot has seen that works really well, and that's the way that we recommend working.
1: Yep, exactly, I think that, that dichotomy there of like, let's definitely be exploring and looking at these new things and trying them and seeing where they do make sense and where we might find ourselves in a technological or a product situation that warrants them, but then having that stable foundation, having that known thing, that yeah, really does seem to be a, a common theme here and one that, again, I, I very much share that. Boring Rails apps, they're great. We can get things done. But now, yeah, I would love to switch back now to what you were talking about with the headless CMSs. I've heard of these, and that's about as far as I've gone, but I've mostly heard of them in very, very positive notes, which I find interesting, because in general, CMS is like a four-letter word. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Many people
1: have horror stories and terrible experiences, and everyone's like, why can't someone just build the general-purpose CMS that works? And I think because that's like one of the classically insolvable problems. But headless CMSs, people seem to like them. So... Can you give us the overview or give me the overview of what they are and then uh, talk a little bit about your experiences?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with what you're saying about kind of the CMS being a four letter word, you know, and I've used a bunch of traditional CMSs and none of them have been perfect or even great, honestly. And it's usually a big lift to put a CMS in place and CMSs have a point of view that doesn't necessarily vibe with the users that may be using it. So then you have that tension there. So in contrast, a headless API CMS is really a backend-only content management system, and that's really served via API to the website. So the user can go in and can use the headless API. So let's say like Prismic has its own UI and uh, Contentful has its own UI. They're a little bit different, but mm-hmm. basically enter that content that's served via API, and then that API can be consumed by developers for display purposes. So you're not as locked in to that whole system. So one of the projects I worked on, for example, we're deploying essentially a static middleman app, and the other one we're deploying a Rails app. So you're not buying into the CMS wholesale as much, and in both of these cases, only really parts of the website are using the CMS, only the parts that need to. You know? So I have, let's say, for example, my homepage that's going to be changing very frequently. So I want a stakeholder to be able to change that by themselves. But maybe some of these other pages don't need a CMS because they're not updated as quickly uh, or as right. frequently, rather. So it just really enables you to just more piecemeal take slices and make them CMS enabled without buying in wholesale to a system.
1: Mm -hmm. When I've seen folks use CMSs, a lot of what I see is drag and drop interface builders facing less technical users. So they're given like, all right, here's the page. I can create a new page. It has a template. And then I can drag an image thing onto it and then a text and then a text box there. But then I want a carousel and I have to provide all the images into that. And... What I see a lot is just uphill fighting of trying to fight against the system and get the layout that you want, but using more indirection because you're this whole drag and drop interface and trying to provide that experience for less technical users. So if I'm understanding it correctly, the headless CMS is say like, we're not going to do any of that. We're just going to expose the content in some API manner. And then developers are typically going to still come in and build out that, that actual display of the content. Absolutely. Is that right? Yeah. Okay.
0: Yep. I would consider it to be a lot more agnostic. And really what I consider the most interesting part of this is the content modeling, right? So like you have these different types of resources in an application and how are you going to model, let's say an object has a list of attributes, how does this translate to a CMS? And you really have the opportunity to make those decisions yourself as opposed to having, you know, off the shelf CMS already having made those decisions and you have to kind of, shoehorn your app into their point of view.
1: That makes sense. It feels like the right optimization, like there's the three different parts of that, of building out the front end, building out the data, like getting the data necessary to populate a front end, and then having the backend admin interface. And it sounds like they've made the decision that like that latter two thirds makes sense to generalize and to produce these systems. But that first third, turns out it's really hard to build a general purpose solution for that. So if we're being honest with ourselves, what if we were to not even try and instead leave that work to still be done in a more purposeful manner. But then the, the rest of it, we can generalize, we can make that as sort of a thing. So I'm excited, but I'm, I would love to poke around with one. I'm, I've just not had the chance, but I'm I'm glad to have one more anecdote now in, in my list of like, yeah, another happy, satisfied customer with headless CMSs.
0: Cool, yeah, I'm really into it. We use Prismic for parts of thoughtbot.com, I believe. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that there's some things you can get your fingers into if you wanted to. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's, just, it's mostly a lack of Friday time. That, oh yeah. Uh, If only November is a complicated month with holidays and things, so we probably will have very little investment time, which is, is rough. I've come to really rely on investment time to stay sane and stay on top of technologies and things, so maybe December, maybe that's when I'll dig in and actually get to poke around with these.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I share your slight sadness about how infrequently investment time actually turns into focused effort. I think probably you suffer from this even more than I do since you're development director now. Congratulations. Well, thank you. But it's hard to get that kind of focused time. And I just wanted to mention that I'm excited that we recently started the Scala book. I call it a book club, but I think it's actually a reading group. I'm not sure what the difference is, but...
1: (laughs) It's the sort of pedantry that we can figure out at a lunch table at ThoughtBot, but otherwise I I, I also don't know the distinction there.
0: Exactly. We specialize in the pedantry over lunch here. But yeah, I'm excited to have that Scala reading group and just like as a group have a focused effort and learn a new technology uh, I think it's going to be fun.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the data science Scala stuff that's going on, is uh, it's been sort of a, a low murmur, but it's been going on for a good bit now. And the more I poke at that ecosystem, the more I poke at that world, it feels like an interesting, perhaps, optimization point around a lot of different technologies. So I'm super excited about Scala and also the broader data stuff that comes along with that.
0: Yeah, I'm excited about it, too. I actually don't have any experience working in Scala, so I don't know much about it. But I'm, ex- I'm just generally excited about enterprise-level like big data problems. So I think mm-hmm. that Scala is a good tool to explore some of that.
1: That's what they tell me. So, <laughs> And hopefully the book will talk about that. What, what book specifically is it that we're reading?
0: Essential Scala, I believe. I don't know who the... Oh, it's by a consultancy, right? I think is it underscore? Let's see. Is it that group? I think you're right about that. Essential Scala by underscore consulting.
1: Okay. And we can share a link to that for anyone else that wants to read along via the internets. Uh, we'll be time shifted and whatnot, but we're with you in spirit, listener, If you if you start to read the book.
0: Yeah. Well, we're only on chapter one right now, so y'all got time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can catch up. Cool. Well, I would love to shift over. There was another topic that you had mentioned, which was around Rails performance and general thoughts on that. Yeah. So yeah, what are what are you thinking on that front?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this kind of is related to what we were talking about with development being boring. And I love just this kind of theme of Rails and optimizing Rails. I think Rails gets a little bit of flack these days. It's unwarranted. But I recently took a Rails performance workshop. I guess it was a couple of weeks now. Myself and my coworker Sean Doyle went. What's up, Sean? It was uh, given by this guy named Nate Berkepek. So he has written a book that's about Rails performance. I believe it's called The Essential Guide to Rails Performance, something like that. He has his own consultancy, and that's about all about Rails performance. And he runs these workshops. So Sean and I went. It was a full day thing, and. It's kind of based around this premise that Rails apps don't have to be slow. I think that's another kind of ism that gets thrown out there. You know, Rails was really good at the beginning of web development, and now we have all these apps that do so much, and Ruby can't really handle everything that it needs to handle, and I don't think that that's true, and I don't think it's true for Rails, obviously, as well. So uh, there are a lot of different parts to this workshop, but basically, it was focused around diagnosing problems in your application kind of across the board. So from a macro level on the back end, micro level on the back end, the front end, server, everything, really identifying opportunities for performance optimization, giving you the tools to do that, we did it as a group. We looked at a you know a bunch of different things and then arming you with kind of like a to-do list. Here are all the things that could be optimized. So yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Talked about benchmarking and profiling. For people who may not be familiar, benchmarking is kind of the idea of like, how long does it take to do this thing? For example, like how long does it take for this HTTP request to execute? Profiling more is where are we specifically spending our time during this thing? So we kind of did both of these things. We did some benchmarking and profiling. I took a look at a couple of client apps that I had been working on, and it was interesting to identify some opportunities for improvement there. And I know that I think both of us, both Sean and I went back to work the next day and and implemented some of these things. So it was exciting. So, you know, like it was really the full gamut from kind of like a macro to a micro level, giving you the tools to benchmark and profile a lot of things. We wrote our own like memory profiler in Ruby. That was fun. <laughs> so,
1: oh, wow. Yeah. That's low level.
0: Yeah. The whole thing was very low level and actually reminded me of kind of like some more low level things. We spent some time talking about garbage collection in that workshop. And it reminded me of this talk that Aaron Patterson gave about compacting garbage collection in MRI Ruby. I don't know if you've seen that talk. I saw it last year at RubyConf. He gave it, but I'm I'm sure he's given it a bunch of times. So that workshop reminded me of it. And then I revisited that video and then just went like really deep down into a hole of like very low level Ruby, which I think is fun, you know, and Rails is a framework that is super convenient. But like there are so many optimizations that can happen at the Rails level, at the Ruby level, et cetera, to help make your applications faster.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, performance is um, its one of those interesting topics that... I find folks often have a cyclical interaction with it. So it's like we ignore performance for a while and then suddenly we notice like the page is taking forever to load. What's going on? And then we dig in for a little while, we roll up our sleeves and spend some time with performance. And I like the idea of refamiliarizing yourself with some of the topics such that they can be more top of mind and you can try and get out in front of things. It's also one of those interesting trade-offs of we don't want to do premature optimization, but there are certain things that we like, and plus one queries is one thing that we can often spot beforehand. They're hopefully relatively easy to sort out, not always, but in a lot of cases they are, and that's one where it's like, we should just fix that. We should have an eye for that. We should be making sure but yeah, do you any other like high-level tips that you have that you're coming away with? That Are there particular things now that you're paying more attention to that you were paying less attention to before, would you say?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that N plus one is a great example of maybe a premature optimization, but something that's so easy to do that you might as well just do it, you know? So let's just think about this for half a second, and let's just optimize right out of the gate. I guess, yeah, C- SQL is a big one. I guess if you're working on a kind of startup type application where I'm at now, we have the luxury of kind of thinking about these things from the beginning. So thinking about the domain model and what the relationships are going to be and really trying to optimize from the beginning for performance. And I agree with what you're saying. We don't want kind of too much focus on this in the beginning. I think mostly maybe my takeaway is it's just good to know how long some of these things are taking. So for example, Benchmark is a module that comes with the Ruby standard library. Like just run Benchmark on a couple of your methods and just see how long they're taking, you know? And I think that those are just kind of good gut checks to have once in a while, you know?
1: Absolutely. I think you hinted to this at the beginning when we were starting to transition topics But I think you were starting to imply that there's sort of a connection there and that you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but was was I properly reading what you were saying there as we were transitioning topics that you feel like there's an interesting intersection there?
0: I think you kind of hit it with what you said about premature optimizations, right? So we don't want to be doing premature optimizations. And I think that there's a right time for this kind of stuff to be discussed and considered. I was talking with someone who is also interested in working at ThoughtBot, and they were telling me about how they had you know, this, this project that they're working on, and they're building this application, and how out of the gate they wanted to optimize for 200,000 users. And I think the ThoughtBot approach is, that's great. Let's get you those 200,000 users. Let's focus on just that let's have that Mm -hmm. be our focus. And once we have those 200,000 users, it'll be a great problem to have and we can optimize then, you know, so I guess kind of the the common thread is just keeping it simple, you know, and with with some of these performance issues, I think sometimes people can kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater a little bit and say like, okay, well, our app has outgrown rails, let's rebuild it in... Scala, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily have to do that. There's a long, long list of improvements you can make that can get you back on the right track.
1: Yep. The premise that you started with that Rails and Ruby often get undue flack thrown at them due to not necessarily having the best performance. And that's that's fundamentally true, but it's true in, I think, sort of a boring way. Like <laughs> Rails can be plenty fast. If your Rails app is not fast enough, most likely it's something like you've got a bunch of N plus ones or... There are a number of other things that can happen, and rarely is it just like, no, Rails can't possibly do this. Rails scales to some of the larger websites on the internet, and it does so fine. And it's Again, it it is not the fastest, that is true, but I think rarely is it going to be Ruby or Rails performance that is truly the thing that is causing your app to perform so slowly as to be like, no, got to burn it down, rewrite it from the ground up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, GitHub is a Rails monorepo, so just think about that for a second. I think if GitHub can do it, I mean, obviously, so Aaron Patterson works for GitHub, and he's working on (laughs) compacting uh, garbage collection, so they're they're doing some work there as well, but I think if GitHub can do it, then pretty much everyone else can.
1: (laughs) Yes, I agree with that. They also do some really interesting things with data centers and with figuring out how to shard at the database level and things like that, which are... Those are the sort of optimizations that I would reach for before fundamentally changing out the application layer. Ideally, if you've built up this whole thing where you've described your application in a language, like, let's hold on to that for as long as we can. But Postgres 10 got table-level partitioning, so you can say, like, oh, this date range goes over here in this table, and this one goes over there. And you can have read replicas, and there are all sorts of interesting things that you can do there. And frankly, I trust Postgres more than I trust a full rewrite of my app to something else. So I'm happy to, like, leverage those tools. More than, again, the dreaded
0: rewrite. Absolutely, I do that. I think people just vastly underestimate the amount of effort that something like that is going to take, and the amount of problems that are going to encounter along the way.
1: I think a related theme here is the idea that as developers, our, our work is in—I don't know—tricking computers into doing things and dealing with these performance things and being more the like hacker end of the spectrum. But again, to sort of describe the the ThoughtBot approach, we view ourselves as product consultants. That is how we describe ourselves. We happen to be developers and designers. Those are the tools that we use. But our goal is to build products, digital products, stuff on the internet. But that product-centric focus, I think, is really meaningful. And it's why we stick with some of the simpler tools, because we want the, the most expressive language to describe these human problems. But on that note, you actually have an interesting background that I would love to dig into just a little bit on the project management side. So can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Sure, yeah. So I've been a developer here for about a year and a half before I was at a coding boot camp. And then before that, I was a product manager for, who knows, maybe almost like five years, a long time. So I was a mobile product manager for about a year, and that was really my first foray into mobile product development. And it was really cool to just learn more about the ecosystems, you know, iOS and Android, all this kind of stuff. And then before that, I was a product manager that kind of encompassed a a bunch of products, but it included an iOS iPad app, a web application. And I basically took this product that was like literally a paper book and turned it into a digital product. And I did that maybe, maybe like three years. And then before that, I worked at that same company, but as a design director. So before I got into product, I had a background in design. So I've really kind of done the whole cycle now, the whole product development cycle.
1: I think you're what's referred to as a triple threat at this point (laughs) in the world of web product design.
0: Cool. Thank you. Yeah, I'm into it. I love being on the development side now, and it's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. And I made a conscious decision to get into product management so I could get closer to development and eventually be a developer. So I'm super into it, but I think a consultancy is really a great place for me to be in that I can still flex those muscles, right? I don't have to just develop and just build what people tell me to build. We are product partners with our clients. So I get to kind of put all those things together and really advocate for what I think will make our clients the most successful.
1: Absolutely, I consistently find that the engagements where I'm happiest, most fulfilled and feel like I've done the most meaningful work are the ones where... We have some tough conversations at points about different features, but we end up with rapid iteration. We end up with a product that's getting in front of customers earlier, and then we're letting that be the pressure that defines the rest of the process rather than large meetings that people draw lots of things on the whiteboard, and then we take that and we build that for six months. And I'm the developer that just goes off and implements those things. I love the idea of bringing the development work closer to the product management, the whole process closer to the users. All of that really speaks to me and sounds like it speaks to you as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And really the product management lens is a very user-focused lens in, in my point of view. So I, I love just always bringing it back to that. Really asking our clients and ourselves to challenge our assumptions and make sure that we're really going back to the users to, to figure out or customers, as I prefer, but, you know, it varies. (laughs) We're going back to the customers for that data that's coming in, you know, for the both qualitative and quantitative data that's helping us make those decisions. I think it's very easy to get in a vacuum and an echo chamber where you think you know what is the right thing to build. And then when you actually put it out there, nobody cares. And I think that's like the saddest thing, you know, (laughs) so...
1: What's the sound of one product lonely not having a single user on the internet? I know, yeah. Can anyone even hear it? They cannot.
0: <laughs> Tragic.
1: <laughs> to loop it back actually to the two previous topics we were talking about, similar to with the performance, like I don't want to say that we shouldn't have performance in mind throughout the process because I do think like security, performance is one of those things that you should never really sleep on. But at the same time, the idea of preemptively, like you were saying, like we're, we're going to have 200,000 users soon. It's like, Okay, but if we build for that now, that's going to change the thing that we build. It's going to slow us down. What if we were to start and, and always have a mind for making sure we haven't backed ourselves into a corner such that we could never support that. But that idea of let's get it out in front of users. Let's see how many users show up. Let's find what's true and then let's build towards that. Like it totally fits with the performance aspect.
0: Yep. So when I was a product manager at this company that I took this book from paper book to iOS app and web application, it was basically market research. So a very data focused application, but there was no real like product management discipline where I was and a getting real, uh, which is a book by Jason Fried, maybe DHH as well, got guy, base mm-hmm. guys small little book and that was like my Bible, you know? (laughs) And so whenever something would come up and, you know, we had kind of like lots of big visions and hopes for it, whenever something would come up, I would always go back to getting real and say, and just like copy and paste excerpts and, and share them with people. And really the whole concept there is, it's not a problem till it's a problem. And let's put something out in the world today and deal with it in the future. And on a related note, one of my favorite anecdotes from Basecamp is that they launched without a way to bill people because they knew that they would have one billing cycle, which was, I guess, 30 days to figure it out. So they're like, let's just get the product out there and we have 30 days to figure out how to collect money for it. And that's pretty radical. And obviously, they're a huge success and very influential, the development and product industries. So I think that there's some wisdom there for sure.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I haven't actually read the book, but I have followed both DHH and Jason Fried for a long time, and I really like the the lack of like performative, like we're crushing it. There, there's none of that from there. Like, no, we are methodically building a business that we want to stick with for a long time. We're doing it in a careful, purposeful way. But frankly, even if you're going for a big exit, we still think this careful, methodical approach is beneficial way to build software. And again, that's you know largely the thing that we do here at Thoughtbot, and it seems to work out pretty well.
0: Yeah, definitely. And it's sustainable. You know, I think that that's kind of what we're going for and what I'm going for in my life in like a almost 2019 world. You know, when you take your time and are methodical and don't bloat your product from a design or development or product perspective, you're really building something sustainable that I think is going to have more value in the future. If you want to go public or anything like that, it's going to be a more resilient, better product. So I really don't see a downside. But it's not it's not like sexy, you know. Like if you're not no. if you're not crushing it, you're not like a rock star. It's a, little, a lot more nuanced. So I think it takes people some time to really kind of dial into that mindset.
1: Yep. Again, not actually read it yet, but they've just come out with it. Doesn't have to be crazy at work. Yes. Which is their their newest book, which is leaning even further into those themes of sustainable pace, which again is a, a core core value here at Thoughtbot. But I, I really do believe that that is a way to build software that over the long term that is an investment. Like if you are burning your people out and they're leaving, then you're not going to be able to continue building at any reasonable rate. Or if you have that one 10X coder that hides in the corner and builds a ton of stuff and then leaves, and like none of those are good things. These just don't build a team and a system and a, and a company, frankly, that will will work. So yeah, I think there's a ton of value in all of the stuff that they've they've been sharing.
0: I think it's, it's not as beneficial from a people perspective, like you said, and even a code perspective as well. If someone is burnt out and tired, I don't think the code that they're going to be writing is going to be as, uh, let's say, maintainable or high quality uh, XYZ as it would otherwise be. I think just feeling like you have the space to take your time and build it right is going to be so much more beneficial in the future. I feel like sometimes I look at a code base and I can almost tell the mentality of the person, like what, what mental state the person was in when they wrote it. Sometimes I'm like, oh, okay. Like this is a little bit of a mess and there are no tests. You know that there was like a deadline or something.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Deadlines are easy to sniff out in a code base.
0: Absolutely. Yep.
1: And then there are those code bases that are like, oh, this entire thing
0: was written under a deadline. Okay. All right.
1: (laughs) Cool. Let's, uh, let's try and. Pull that one back, but digging in a little bit more on the the sort of customer-centric thing, I think looping all the way back to the topic of the headless CMSs, I'm sort of intrigued by that separation of the data layer from the presentation layer. I think there's some really interesting stuff happening there. Both the headless CMSs, which seem to do that in one approach, and then the other the other technology that I'm seeing take off is GraphQL, which provides a domain layer. It's a it's a way to describe what's true about your platform. And I'm really intrigued by both of those, that like separation of how do we get the data from what are the questions we're asking about the data. And it feels almost like it's been a missing aspect of the system for a long time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I haven't worked with GraphQL. I know I have some developer friends who are very excited about it. it seems really cool. But yeah, tell me more.
1: It's interesting. GraphQL is like, it's a collection of ideas and different ways that we're accessing data. But what I've noticed is that the conversations that we have around the data and the platform fundamentally change in a GraphQL based system, we start to ask, like, what's true, not how do I serialize some resource with a REST API, but what is true of our platform? How are these two resources within our system associated? What What is true about that relationship? And it's very, very much driven from the client side. So what are the needs of the client and how do we build an API that supports that rather than here's some data that you can ask for and then match together on the front end. And I think even when I look at Rails apps, one of the adages that I often try to follow is try to use as few of the active record query methods outside of the models as possible. Instead, introduce custom scopes and named methods and things like that that encapsulate that query logic so that you're exposing a named abstraction of how we interact with the domain layer and not just that direct mapping to the database layer. It's actually one of the things that I lament about ActiveRecord is the fact that you just pointed a table and congratulations, everything in that table is exposed to you. Right. And it makes that mapping a little too direct, I feel. And there's almost no abstraction layer there. There's no way to say something like you can, you can layer in these methods and things like that, but it's by default, you just get it all. And what I really like about GraphQL or like Prismic and other headless CMSs, I think are in a similar place where they allow you to define the structure of your data. And you were describing like, that's one of the parts that you like about working with them. I think there's really interesting things happening there. And then we see on the client side, things like React JS, which are like, we just help you make views. We present data to the browser. And I like that separation. I'm I'm starting to feel more and more comfortable with that as a way to abstract software.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it makes it so much easier to reason about from a human level. You know, what does this application do? What are the different resources? What are the common things that we're going to need to access? And, yeah, in the absence of that, things can get a little slapdash in a Rails app, I think, if you're not careful. If you're not careful about your um, just kind of best practices, you can get a lot of queries in lots of different places and can get out of control quickly.
1: Well, with that, I think this has been a tour de force. Anything else you want to dig into before we uh, round out the conversation?
0: Oh, I guess one last thing I wanted to say is I'm super excited that Upcase is free. I've been a huge fan of Upcase for a while. It was very helpful to me. And I want to shout out two weekly iterations. So just weekly iterations in general, I think, are great because they're a little bit shorter. One of them is uh, testing third-party APIs. And the other one is uh, composition over inheritance. And I think, Chris, maybe you were on both of those episodes. but
1: I think testing third-party APIs I'm on, composition over inheritance, I don't think so. But yeah, those are two of our, our most popular. And, oh, they uh, are
0: good. Well.
1: Yes. Yeah, I don't know if there's a self-referential aspect to that because then they got into the like recommendation system, um, which I just talked to George on the last episode about uh, machine learning. And maybe we'll update and add a new recommended learning system. But but yeah, that's so great that you've been able to sort of see the arc of Upcase over the years. And yeah, much, I'm I'm very excited that it is out there.
0: Me too. I'm always talking to my friends about it. So now I can uh, just send them links and I'm super pumped.
1: (laughs) I know. And Google can find all this stuff. It's an exciting time to be alive.
0: It really is.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Well, we will include links to both of those weekly iterations in the show notes as well. And if folks want to follow you on the internet, where's the best place to find you, Christina?
0: Twitter, I think is a good place, Christina ENT. And that's really the main one.
1: Perfect. We will add that into the show notes as well. And with that, thank you so much for joining us, Christina.
0: Thanks, Chris. Had an awesome time.
1: Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed on Twitter or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next bike shed. This podcast was brought to you by Thoughtbot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco,
0: New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.